0: Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley, a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love to talk to creative people, see how they do their thing, why they do it, how they keep it going. And this week I'm talking to my old friend, Derek Hartley. He is the co-host of Derek and Romaine, the radio show that was once on Sirius XM, but is now independent at DerekandRomaine.com. We're going to find out all about how all that went down. Um, also, Derek is my longest podcast in history. And those of you who know him from his show know that he can talk. So we're going to divide it up into two parts. Um, But before I get there, I just want to uh, give a shout out to all the people that have gone to iTunes and written nice reviews about the show. I really appreciate it. You can also go to dennisanyone.net and you can see pictures that go with some of the podcasts. Like if we talk about a painting or something, I'll take a picture. And uh, you can also donate to my virtual tip jar. It helps me Pay for things like web hosting space and little expenses that come up, and it really helps me out a lot, and I appreciate it. And uh, you can also email me there, so um, check out dennisanyone.net. And without any further ado, here is part one of my old friend Derek Hartley. All right, I'm here in my own living room. And I brought in a guest from the right coast. Ladies and gentlemen, Derek Hartley. Oh my God. You know what I mean? Love it. This feels <laughs> like it was always meant to be. You knew you were coming out for the weekend. You're like, I want to do your podcast. And I'm I like, would I would it. love nothing more.
1: Um, first of all, it's great to be in your living room. Yes. Because I have many happy memories of being in your living room.
0: Watching some crazy show on a, on a screen, probably. Uh,
1: yeah. Like terrible, uh, whatever terrible award show. Um, uh, Miss Black America, uh, bad movies, cheesy TV shows, listening to Sybil Shepherd's album. Oh my
0: God, we did that here? Oh
1: yes. Because I, I think, was talking I about it,
0: that recently and I don't remember with who. I think it might have been on the podcast. But Vanilla is uh, an amazingly bad album. You can't, I can't believe it.
1: I feel like you had a listening... Like a, a party. listening party, yes. Where it was like come over and we'll listen to selected tracks from Sybil Shepherd's album and then we'll discuss them.
0: I used to be so cool <laughs> and I'm not anymore. You're here for the weekend, you were at Disneyland.
1: I was at Disneyland, they had the mini gay days thing and so Did I you hang out, out with there. listeners
0: or were you I on did. your own? Okay.
1: Yeah, so I did hang out with listeners and it's something that we've done before where we come out for, for Disney. My co-host, Romaine Patterson, is a late-in-life devotee to Disney.
0: She she discovered it late.
1: Yeah. Well, she grew up in Wyoming, and her family never had money to go to Disneyland. Right. And then, once she became an adult, she's like, it wouldn't be interesting to me. Why would I care? And I think there are a lot of adult people who are like that. They're like, it's for kids. Maybe right. when I have kids, I'll go someday. And I kept telling her, I'm like, I'm telling you, this is for you. Disney's for you. And... The Gay Days uh, thing that they do every year. It's like, you know what? Come out for that. This is our demographic. Come out, hang out with listeners, and ride rides and everything. You like roller coasters or whatever. And finally, she came out, went to Disneyland the first time, and I took her around, took her to all the places, and we're leaving at the end of the day. And she has like tears, glistening eyes, and she goes, This place really does have magic in it. <laughs> And she has been the most psychotic, devoted Disney person. And now she's become one of those Disney people that all of us who grew up or lived in Southern California can't stand, which is the Disney know-it-all. Oh, you know what this building used to be? Yes, I do, because I've lived here. Like, I know, right. Of course I know these things. She thinks she's just invented the history of Disney and can't wait to tell you. And it's great if you don't know it, but it's like, I grew up here and I, I know Disney nerds from way back who know way more than you do about all these things. Right. But she thinks she invented things, but it it was the same thing. You know, she, uh, when we were working in near times square at Sirius XM, the studios are there in Rockefeller center and she would part, she would take the bus into port authority and come in through times square. And one day she's like, I discovered a secret way to get to the office where um, you can cut through Times Square and save yourself a ton of time. And it's a secret, and nobody knows about it. Yeah, Schubert Alley. Like, you know what? People have been cutting through Schubert Alley for 100 years. Like, right. this, is, this is not a secret, but Romaine just discovered it, so it's brand new information for everyone.
0: You know what? So do you shit on her, or do you <laughs> let her enjoy it? What do you do? Well, I mean, in some ways, it's like, you, you know,
1: don't wake a sleepwalker. Like, you know what? It's <laughs> great.
0: No, you know you want to...
1: Enjoy your fantasy. Right. Great. It's great that you discovered it. It's wonderful. I mean, my biggest thing with Romaine is that I'm always trying to convince her of things. Like, I know her very well. We've worked together now for almost 13 years. And so, I feel like I know her. Right. And I know what she's going to like. Like, with Disneyland. I knew her. And I knew, you know, she's got a kid inside her. She was going to love going to Disneyland. And it's like, it just, it takes a lot for her to believe me. But it doesn't matter how many times I'm right about these things. I'm right way more often than I'm wrong. She'll tell you the same thing. And she is really slow to take my advice on things like that. But, you know, eventually she comes around. Like, I can wear her down over time.
0: And, And then you prove that you're right.
1: And then I prove that I'm right. And then I do, like, a happy dance about it. Like, I'm right. You know I'm right. And, I mean, she hates that part. It's probably why... She resists it so much because she doesn't want me to she be She doesn't right want the her. happy
0: dance. No, no. Now, you, you said you've been working together 13 years on the Derek and Romaine show, originally on SiriusXM, OutQ. Q. Right. Now, you've gone to your own hosting situation on the web, 2.0, Derek and Romaine 2.0. Yeah. But you guys were just kind of put together at the beginning. So it's yeah. kind of, you're like one of those marriages in another country where the wife and the husband meet right before the wedding and then somehow it works. That was basically
1: it. I mean, we were just put together, and I knew the guy who started the channel. This was back in two thousand and two. Right. Um, I got a call, and it was for a new channel that was starting on Sirius Satellite Radio. This before Sirius and XM merged. And the only thing I knew about satellite radio were those XM commercials where the musicians were falling from the sky. Remember, it was like Keith Richards fell into somebody's I, motel room. Do you remember this? I don't remember those commercials,
0: but they it, sound effective.
1: Yeah, it played in front of it played in front of uh, movies mostly, and I I see every terrible movie ever. I can't wait to get the observation deck. I hope you have an hour or two for bad movies. <laughs> I, do, I do. I see every do. I see every horrible movie. Okay, I see that's all, all good. movies. Um, good, bad or otherwise, I go for the popcorn. But good. Um uh, but anyway, you know, they had this and the message was, you know, all of this great stuff is falling from the sky, right? It's coming from a satellite right. to you. And that was all I knew about satellite radio. And I had worked for AOL and some other dot coms planted out in the nineties, and when I went to Sirius, they had these beautiful offices. I mean they're still beautiful in Rockefeller Center. Gorgeous Italian glass studios, just beautiful. Gorgeous lobby, two stories, and I walked in, and my first thought was, oh, "Well, they're going to go out of business tomorrow because it was like every dot com startup I'd ever been to, where right. you know ping pong tables. It's like, does anyone have a job? Do you have a business model? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Hey, but we got free soda. Yeah, I was like, okay, you're all going go to way- yeah, yeah. go the way. Yeah, you're doomed. You're going to go the way of Pets.com. So, um, so I, so I got offered to do a radio show, and um. And I was like, well, this will last for a few months. Uh, fine, you know, whatever. And we were looking for a producer for the show. And we were getting sort of close to launch in 2003. And the guy who started John McMullen, he's like, you know what? I would really like it. There's lots of guys who are hosting shows. It's all men. And um, we don't have a lot of, like, you know, it's supposed to be an LGBT channel. And it's all G. It's all white and it's all G. And uh, he's like, it would be great if we had some... You know, like a lesbian or something, if we should find a lesbian to produce the show for you. I was like, that would be great. I like lesbians. I believe in diversity. And uh, so he goes, Do you know any lesbians? And I had moved to New York like a year before. And he had fairly recently moved to New York too. And it's like, I don't really know any lesbians here. I don't know anyone here, really. And uh, so it's like, Well, we know Kathy Renna from GLAD. She's a lesbian. She must know other lesbians. This is literally how sad and tragic it was. But, I mean, the, the, and that's how we found Romaine. I mean, in the first time we asked Kathy, she didn't know anybody who had, like, radio experience. Uh, and this was part of the problem with starting OutQ in the beginning and why everybody who was there didn't have experience doing radio. Because for most gay people, they didn't think, oh, when I grow up, I can have a career in radio. Because there weren't openly gay people on your local radio station. Right. And so there was no farm team coming up of young LGBT people who were looking to get into a career in radio. So it was kind of hard to find people. And 2003 was sort of early in the internet. I mean, there weren't a lot of, you know, it wasn't like social media where it's much easier. Now, if you need to find somebody who does something, it's very easy now to do that. Yeah. Um, but in 2003, it just wasn't that easy. What were we supposed to do? Like bang on the door on Friendster? Like there wasn't a lot, there weren't a lot of options. So we went to Kathy. Kathy Renna didn't really know anyone. And then weeks went by. We still didn't have anyone getting close to launch. And John asked her again. So then she asked um, Glenda Testone, who had worked at GLAAD, and she's now the executive director of the Gay Center in New York. And Glenda said, what about Romaine? I think she she went to school for radio or something. But Romaine had gone to school for... She got a degree in sound engineering, right. which for John McMullen, close enough. Yeah. Like, you know how to work the equipment? Great. And he literally called her up and she had worked for GLAAD uh, for a while and she had done Glad alerts with him when he was doing internet radio um, back in the 90s. And so he remembered her and he's like, oh yeah, she's great. And literally just picked up the phone and was like, hi, would you like a job? <laughs> like, why well, I want you to do this show. Now he told her she was going to be the co-host of the show and producer and told me she'd be the producer. And then a few days before we were launching, he's like, you know what? We don't have um, any other women who are hosting shows. Would you mind co-hosting with Romaine? And by that point, I'd actually met her. We hung out at a bar for a few hours and chatted and we really got along well. And I was like, sure, I like Romaine and I believe in equality and diversity and whatever. Um, but we both sort of started work under a total mis- uh, misapprehension because... She believed she was hired from the get-go as a co-host of this show, and I believed that she was a producer and I had agreed to elevate her to this job. Right. So she came in thinking, you know, this is my job. And I came in thinking, I did this wonderful, mighty white and me thing for her, and how come she wasn't more grateful about it? And then she was like, how come he's not helping? Because she was the producer and co-host, and I was just a co-host. I was like, I'm not going to help you do your job. Like... I'm the I'm the star of the show who agreed to let you be a part of the show. Right. So um, we had a rough first few months, for when sure. When did it
0: finally, when did it, the air kind of get cleared, where you kind of clarified people's roles?
1: Well, we took a road trip. Romaine had done a speaking thing with this conference in Connecticut called uh, True Colors. Right. And it's for LGBT youth, high school and college students, and... um I mean, you remember when you were in high school and you would go to some, like, drama meetup? Yeah. Anyway, now it's actually called LGBT. <laughs> and, um, so they meet at this college in, right. uh, in uh, Connecticut and Romaine had spoken there and she's like, oh, well, we'll, you know, we should put a booth there or something, get the word out, bang the drama about our show. And so we were in the car, we were driving, it was like a, whatever, three hour drive. And, um, we had just had a meeting with the head of programming at the time and, um, we were very chummy. And she's like, well, how do you know him? Did you know him before we started doing the show? And I said, oh, no. You know, I did a pilot before beforehand, and I had meetings with him and everything, and we just got to know each other. And she's like, oh, I didn't know you did a pilot. And so I told her the whole story of how I came to do a show there and everything and how we had been looking for a producer and then blah, 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 blah and then I had gotten this call to elevate her to a co-host. And she's like, oh, I never knew that. I just got a call saying, "Would you like to co-host this show?" I had no idea, and it broke everything open between the two of us. Right. That like both of us had two different pieces of information, and even though we were literally talking for four, five, six hours a day with each other, we had never had this conversation. And well, it's nine, hard to have that conversation. Later,
0: well, yeah, but and it's you also, also don't know things. that you need to. You didn't yeah. know that it was it had been miscommunicated,
1: and we didn't know each other, so we didn't know each other's personality. So. She just thought I was a pompous ass, which is true. Um, and I just thought she was an ungrateful bitch, which is also <laughs> true. But we didn't know that it was somehow... That there was more to the story, right, basically. Right, right, yes. right,
0: Why does it work?
1: I think it works... Um, it works because we... You know, as different as we are, and we're very different, we have very similar sensibilities. And I think it's for a couple of reasons. One... I have a younger sister that I grew up with and we have a very Romaine and I have a very similar dynamic so much so that like when I'm talking to my mom about things, I will find myself calling my sister Romaine or calling Romaine by my sister's name. Like, Mm -hmm. because in my head, they're almost the same person. I had a dream recently and you know, one of them was in it, but it was the other one. Like it's very in my mind. They're very close. And she had older gay brothers And so that kind of brother-sister bickering dynamic clicked for us really early. But I've had a gay, like a gay social theory for a long time about um, your gay age versus your chronological age. Right. And Romaine and I are the same gay age. And what I mean by gay age is your gay age is the number of years you've been out. And so you can often find that you get along better with people no matter what their age is by the fact that the two of you have been out the same amount of time. Right. Because you're emotionally and psychologically in a more similar place. You know, when you're in the closet or you're first coming out, you're in a very different place than you are 10 years after coming out or 20 years after coming out. So if you're coming out at 40, you have more in common with a 20-year-old who's just coming out in a lot of ways than you do with other 40-year-olds. And I think that sometimes that's part of why sometimes gay people don't click with each other because their gay ages are so far off. They're in such different places in life. Even right. if they're chronologically, they're contemporaries. It's, it doesn't work. Romaine came out at 13, I came out at 22, and we're nine years apart. So the way that we look at the world, the way that we think about the Clinton administration, the way we think about identity politics or gay rights or where we're at with ourselves and being gay people we're right on the same wavelength and it's because we've been open gay people for the same amount of time
0: that is really interesting i'm going to think about that now in terms of my own relationships and do that math yeah now you had a long run at sirius xm that ended in the summer yeah and then you saw sirius merge with xm when was it the best was there a year or whatever? And just in terms of how, not just your own chemistry or whatever, but just the way that if, if you felt like the company was doing well or... I don't know. When was, it, when was it the best? I mean, probably when Howard came over. When Howard Stern started. Howard the Stern
1: started. And they made the announcement that Howard was coming. And they had a big, like, company meeting that day that it was announced. And Howard was there. And we were all sort of waiting in the lobby. And... Howard came in and like shook everyone's hands and spoke a little and the CEO spoke a little and everything. And when Howard came through, I I was the first person who shook his hand there. I mean, it's not like a, like, oh I'm big time, but like I was the closest to the door when he walked in, like, but like, that was really exciting because I had worked at AOL in the nineties and people would say, Oh, well, first I worked at Planet Out. And I would try to tell people what I did. And they said, so you work for a web page? No, no, no. It's a website, like a whole site. Well, I don't know what that is. I don't understand what that means. And then I went to work at AOL. Like, oh, you're an American online? No, it's America, America online. Like it... Was like constantly mansplaining what I did for a living, and then I went to work in satellite radio, and it was starting all over again. And we would go places, and it's like we have this—you
0: can't it, help it if you're on the
1: cutting um, edge, Jerry. It's exhausting. It's, it's really exhausting it's, being on the cutting edge. The cutting the edge things. is giving you paper cuts. It's a nightmare. And so, uh, but when Howard came, it was a moment of legitimacy for satellite radio. Of like, this is a real thing. People this get is it now. really happening. Well, and it also it gave people an opportunity to give it a look. Like yeah. oh well, if Stern is coming, it must be a real thing, right? And so that was a really that was a really exciting. What time. year was that? Two thousand and five. Okay, so eleven years ago, right? I mean, it was always exciting. What it, where it got exciting for us was when we would go into events. We did a lot of events, sometimes up to twenty a year, and part of it was. You know, satellite radio is national, and most people, their relationship to radio is local, right? You have your local radio station, and your local radio personalities, and they, they do a remote from a gas station or whatever it is and give away t-shirts. Like, your relationship to radio is a local relationship. Right. I mean, even when I come here to Los Angeles, my relationship is to the world-famous K-Rock. Right. Like, I am not a rock and roll person, but that's my station. And I come here... And every time I listen to it, it's the station I always remember it's L.A. it was. It's so L.A. It's right. quintessential L.A. It is still the gold standard of radio stations in America. Like, bar none. k Right is the best. And what's great about it is that, um, you know, I have an emotional relationship to it. Because that was my local radio station as a teenager. And so, in work, working in national radio and satellite radio, it's like, well, how do we create that kind of a local experience for people? So, Romaine and I hit the road, and we would MC Pride events, and we would go to Gay Days at Disneyland, and...
0: You traveled a lot traveled. together. We
1: traveled a lot, so that, because that's where the audience was, and that's where we built our mm-hmm. fan base and our following around local people. And, I mean, we saw it, because we would do annual listener surveys, and, like, Texas was our number two state. And it was number two because we did events in Texas. We actually went to Texas. We talked to Judy Weider at The Advocate. And, like, Texas wasn't even on The Advocate's radar in 2003, 2004, 2005. Like, that wasn't where their readership was. Their readership is in California and New York and Chicago a bit and you know, right. maybe Atlanta. But, like, you know, Texas is huge. It's in population, the number two state. Houston is the fourth largest city in America. Like, that's where the audience is. And so for us, it was like, well, we have to go where the audience is. So that's where our audience is. Our audience is in Texas or Arizona or all of these other places. And so that's where we would go. And um, we were in Atlanta. The first time we were in Atlanta, we were doing their Pride of course in Piedmont Park. And, but we were on the other side of town. Somebody had recommended some restaurant for brunch or breakfast or something. So we, we were there, but we were not anywhere near Pride. And we went to a Starbucks and we were walking across the street. And this car honked. And we had been on the air for a year on satellite radio. And we had just started doing events. And this car honked. And the windows roll down and this straight couple in the car starts screaming, Derek and Robin! And we were not wearing like serious shirts. It was just us walking down the street. And the first time that happened, I mean, it was unnerving and unsettling, but it was also really exciting. It's like, oh my God, maybe this is happening. Like people are actually listening. And this yeah. is like a real thing because whenever you do anything, I mean, unless you're in like a stage show. Like you're a music performer, you do like a Broadway show or off-Broadway or like a stand-up comedy. Like you get the immediate, the audience shows. They either show or they don't show. Right. You walk out on that stage, the audience is either there or not there. When you do a movie or when you do a TV show or when you do radio... You hope the audience will be there. You think they're going to be there. And sometimes you have a sense through ratings or whatever that the audience is there. But it's not tangible in the way that, like, a live performance is tangible. So to have that first-time tangible experience of, oh, my God, people are listening and they know who we are, that was exciting. And, I mean, you know, unnerving for me.
0: Where's the weirdest, most rinky-dink Appearance you did where you're standing there with t-shirts and banners going, what the fuck?
1: Um, Lehigh Valley Pride (laughs) in Pennsylvania. I got to emcee a doggy fashion show. (laughs) And it was one of these things where I had not planned to do it. I guess somebody else, if they fell out or they didn't tell me in advance. And what you have to know is... I talk on the radio. I've talked on the radio for all of these years. And before that, I wrote a column for Planet Out. It's like I have fiz- I have put myself out there quite a bit over the years. But I don't stand up in front of crowds. Like I mean, I don't know how you feel, Dennis, about this, but like, you know, cuz you're sort of in the same boat I am. You spend a lot more time behind the scenes or behind a microphone than standing out in front of audiences of people. And I am just not comfortable in front of a crowd. Romaine loves it. She eats it up. She can't she can't get enough. And when we first started doing like events, like Pride events, Romaine was really surprised because I would lead the conversations in the studio and then we would get to a pride stage and I would start like drifting back further and further away right. from the crowd. And Romaine kept waiting for me to, like, take to the lead. To be Derek
0: yeah. in the studio.
1: And what she discovered is, oh, we have a different dynamic on stage. And so Romaine takes the lead when we're at a crowd. Because, like, right. I've gotten more comfortable with it because I've had to over all these years, but it's not my natural state of being. And, and I also, I'm fine with winging it, like, here um, or doing my own show I could just carry on a conversation, wing it, and I don't care. Throw out jokes if they bomb, I don't care. But I like, I like to be prepared if I'm on stage. I like to have some, some material or some sense of time and, like, how much time I have to fill and that kind of thing. Like, I like a more regimented thing. Um, I like radio to be preform, but on stage I like to know. And so in this case with the Doggy Drag Show, like, I didn't know anything about it. And it was literally like, well, when the dogs come out, just describe the dog and what it's wearing. And that is my, like, personal nightmare. That's so, going to be
0: the title of yeah. this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> the dog and what it's wearing.
1: <laughs> and so, that was, like... Who do a, I look
0: like? Tim fucking gone? Right.
1: But also, it's like, and now I have to identify dog breeds. Like, yeah. I don't know every dog breed, and I don't know what they're It's writing. a
0: white dog in a blue but dress. Okay. Next.
1: But it wasn't even, like, the worst... I think this is one of the observation deck questions, and I pulled it on purpose. Like, the, but the worst stage thing that we had was in, um... Charlotte, North Carolina, we did their Pride. And this was in 2005, let's say. And so we go down there for Charlotte Pride, and we get there. And the stage manager, like, I don't know how much people know about Pride events, but mostly they're volunteer run. Right. And when you go to a Pride event, it's a little bit like having a three-way with a couple that you picked up in a hotel bar. (laughs) Like, you don't really know what you're getting yourself into until you get up into the room. Yeah. And that's how it is with prides. Like, you go to a pride event, and to an outside observer, all pride events are basically the same, right? It's a bunch of booths, there's some drag queens up on a stage somewhere, whatever. Maybe they'll have, like, a mechanical bull or a rock climbing wall or whatever their shtick is that's local. But generally, like, it's all the same. They're selling t-shirts with rainbows on it, and you cruise guys and whatever. But behind the scenes, Prides are all very, very different in how they're run and organized. Phoenix Pride, we love doing their Pride. It was the most smoothly run Pride I've ever seen in my life.
0: Yay, Arizona. That's my home I state. Mean, they're it, doing something right. It ran like
1: clockwork. Linda Hoffman, who ran that thing, she ran it. Lesbian. Like, Yeah. But she ran it like D-Day.
0: Le- Le- like, nothing like a lesbian kid. on a headset. Yeah.
1: And uh, they did it great. And so people would always ask us, like, what's your favorite Pride? And it's like, well, Phoenix. And it's like, well, it's not like the greatest Pride to go to. But if you're a performer, it was the best Pride. Because yeah. when they said they were picking you up at the airport or whatever, they were there. Yeah. When they said it was your time on the stage was 4 o'clock, it was 4 o'clock. Yeah. And the first time we did Pride there, Linda was not a serious subscriber. She was an XM subscriber. And we contacted them about emceeing. And she had satellite radio, but she hadn't heard our show, and she's like, Alright, we'll give you a try as an MC. And so we came out and we MC'd their stage and we ended three minutes early. And when you're doing live things, you're dealing with live acts, like, it's very hard to keep on time. And they ran everything like crazy. So the fact that we ended three minutes early, Linda was like, Can you come back every year? Yeah. Like amazing. We want you to be our only MCs now yeah. because that's how we run things, and that's how we want our stage run. We want to end on time. And part of it was Phoenix. They had noise ordinances and everything. They couldn't go an hour late because they would, the stage would get shut down by the city. Like They needed things to be organized and end on time.
0: They had a hard out. Yeah,
1: they had a hard out. And so um, that was great. But we went to Charlotte very quickly. So we go to Charlotte, and we get there. And the person who was, running, was supposed to run the stage quit that morning. Like in a hub, had been having drama with the board, and decided that they were, you know, they were going to quit that morning and throw them all in turmoil and screw them. It was all over. And so we get there, and they didn't have any money to pay the performers. So the performers started showing up at the airport. Nobody's there to pick them up. Some of them like got into cabs eventually and made their way to the park. And we're basically told like, oh, well, we don't have anywhere for you to stay. We don't have any money for you. But if you want to perform, since you're here. You can perform. Yeah. And, I mean, it was pretty much, I have to assume, for every independent artist, your worst nightmare. Right. And for us, like, we weren't getting paid. We were doing it for the promotional exchange of, you know, we'll have space there. And we get to promote our radio show and everything. And we had paid for our own travel and we had a hotel and everything. But, like, the other performers who came, they were totally screwed. But we got there and basically... Like, some of the performers were like, well, I'm not going to perform. And then other people didn't show up. And because the stage manager had quit, nobody knew who was coming and when or where and who was supposed to be there and what was going on. There was no schedule. And at one point, when we would sort of... And MC, you have to MC the whole day. between the acts, yeah. And, um, and, like, the worst part of it was we one of the acts ended and we were about to go up and we asked the person who was, like, helping run the stage, like, okay, who's coming up next? And they said, we don't know. Well, when will they be here? We don't know. And then it was like, go out on the stage. And we had to fill for an hour and 15 minutes between acts.
0: What did you t- talk about?
1: I mean, at a certain point, it's like, well, we're just going to... Romaine is like, I guess we're just going to do our radio show. Yeah. And then we just get out there and the two of us just talk to each other. And that that Charlotte pride was a weird pride because they had a situation where it was in a public park, so they couldn't keep protesters out, but the protesters couldn't talk to anyone in the inside the park like they couldn't disrupt the pride. Right. So they had a silent protest going on and I've never seen so many protesters. They had 300 silent protesters and they were all wearing t-shirts that said like drenched in the blood of Christ. Literally were, literally, literally, the- literally like drenched in the blood like of Christ. Right? Yeah, the yeah. Okay. And and there was a guy with an inflatable 10 commandments up on the right. corner with a bullhorn and uh but the thing was, if they were like, oh, how much of these socks? Like, the police were like, nope, you got to go. we then, we're them out. But so if, they couldn't talk at all. So they couldn't talk at all. They couldn't say anything. Not even a, have a nice day. Nothing. Nope. The police would, like, roll them out. And we saw them. Like, they were being nice or whatever. Gesundheit. Nope, you're out. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, there were a thousand people at the Pride and there were 300 protesters. It was wow. insane. And it was not a big Pride. But the upshot of it was, uh, near the end, we were packing up. And this woman came up to us at the end And uh, she's like Oh you guys are leaving? I drove all this way And we had had a situation The first year we went to Market Days in Chicago And a truck driver Had driven in from Wisconsin or something Driven on the And we had a bar meetup, And he got there as we were leaving the bar It was like 2am and we were heading to IHOP Like gotta go to IHOP And he got there and he's like I drove all this way to see you And we're like oh that's so sorry well bye And then we walked away And then, like, 20 feet later, we realized, oh, my God, we're the worst people alive. This guy just drove for hours to meet us, and we barely shook his hand and walked away. And we turned around. He was already gone, and then it just ate us up inside, like, forever. So when we got to Charlotte the next year, this woman comes up, and we're packing up the boxes and leaving. And she's like, oh, I couldn't get out of work, and I just got here, and, you know, it's leaving, and now and like we feel terrible but you know what we're and i and i said well you know later on tonight we'll probably be hanging out at the eagle it was like the only gay bar there and our hotel was like across the street from it it's like well you know if you're still around tonight come and see us at the eagle because we'll you know we'll be there so we're leaving now because we've been here all day and it's been horrible and we have to go like i can't be here one more second but come and join us at the eagle later And so she comes, so later on, we're at the Eagle, and Romaine goes, hey, is that that woman who was at Pride earlier today? And I look over, and I was like, yeah, I think so. she was, like, standing in the corner alone against the wall, drinking a beer. And uh, I was like, why is she standing over there? And Romaine's like, I don't know. She obviously doesn't know anyone. I'm going to go talk to her. And um, so she talked to her. And then, um, she slept with her and then she married her and now they have a kid in a house and have been together ever oh since. Oh
0: my God. That's the Iris story. That
1: is the Iris story. That is how Romaine so like never wife. was a listener. She was a listener, but if we hadn't shined on that trucker yeah. in Chicago a year earlier, we might've shined her on in right. Charlotte and Romaine never would have seen her again that's and her amazing. whole life would have been different.
0: Yeah. How many listeners have you made out with in the course of your radio career? Oh,
1: no, a lot. Uh, More probably, than 20? P- probably too many.
0: Uh, 20,
1: maybe. Yeah, let's say 20. Sure, that's a good number. Okay. Yeah.
0: Have you ever dated one seriously?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah. Okay, that's good. Uh, my,
1: I had a boyfriend for, whatever, two and a half years, Sean. Yeah. He was a listener of the show. Nice. And, uh,
0: yeah. Has a listener ever made you cry?
1: Um, like... Uh, emotionally, yeah. Like, like at, tell
0: they tell you a story because the cool thing about OutQ is that it was reaching places in the country where there isn't, aren't a lot of gay people, and I'm sure right. you heard stories about them feeling a connection to a community, feeling less alone. Did any of those stories ever um, like
1: really touch me? Yeah,
0: no. <laughs> I am um,
1: a horrible heartless person. No, I mean there have been people who have had very touching stories. They haven't made me cry. I mean, I'm I'm the kind of person that will cry at like a Long-distance commercial or a Hallmark card right. commercial. Like, I cry at sentimental crap, but I don't tend to cry about my own life. Like, if I have problems, I don't cry about them. No, that's true. And uh, so that's just like that's just not who I am. Right. Um, but I mean, I got uh, you know after our show got canceled, and I did get a emo- I did get emotional after our show got canceled talking about what the show meant to the listeners. Because I got... Because it hits you in a rush, doesn't it? Well, I mean, no, because like after it got canceled, we got a lot of emails from people who said, you know what, I always thought of myself as a casual listener of your show. Like, I would get in the car and I would tune in and whatever but I didn't like your Facebook page, and I never went to one of your events, and I thought your cruises sounded stupid and crazy. Like, what kind of, you know, what are the psychotic nuts who listen to your show? Of course, they want to go on a cruise, but I'm a normal human person. Why would I want to spend a week with people I listen to on the radio? And then your show got canceled, and it wasn't there anymore. And I, when I found out, I started sobbing at my desk. Like, more than a dozen people wrote to me and said that they cried. Like, they were at work, and they heard like a friend was like, Oh my god, the show got canceled and they just started crying. And they were like, I didn't realize what the show meant to me until it wasn't there anymore. And so I did like in the week after that we did a we did like a video together and I got emotional thinking about that. Because, you know, I liked having a job. I mean having a job is important. It's nice to have a job. But when you can have a job that means something to people, that is meaningful to them, even if they don't realize that it's meaningful, you know, that's a really powerful thing. And we have had, you know, when you do something like this, any gay person who has had any measure of fame, any small measure of fame, will tell you exactly the same thing. At some point, some person has, who lives in the middle of nowhere, has said, You're the gay person that I connected with, and it made me realize that I have to come out, and there, you know, there's more for me out there in this world. Like, the kind of letter that just breaks your heart, right? And it'll be an email or a letter, and they'll come up to you, and they'll tell a story. I don't know any gay person who's ever had any kind of public anything that hasn't had that happen to them, because that's the power of being not just an openly gay person, but a visible gay person. And so I knew from those kinds of situations that even if people were not calling in or writing to us, like just having that there, being a gay kid who's driving around in their parents' car, listening to their satellite radio, tuning into OutCue because they can and their parents won't know and find out and they can hear about the lives of other people, m- you know, made it better for them. give
0: them a window into yeah. what's possible.
1: Yeah. And so I knew... I knew that there was more going on to our show and our channel than straight people who program radio could get or comprehend. And, and, I mean, that's not really a disservice to them. Like, they've never had to come out. They don't know what that's like. I mean, I feel... I think that a lot of gay people can um, recognize, like in the Black Lives Matters um, movement, when black people talk about, you know, the fear that they have about being pulled over... For no reason, like that they don't know what the outcome of being when a cop, when the lights come on behind them, when they're driving, that they don't know what the outcome of that is going to be. And that as parents, they have to tell their kids, oh, by the way, you don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, as a, as a, as a white person, like I never felt that way. I mean, like, I don't want to get pulled over. I'm like, oh, the dread of a cop pulling me over, whatever, getting a ticket or whatever it is like. I mean I get that to of ill. but I never think oh when I'm the reaching system-ish. for my insurance they're going to shoot me like right. that doesn't occur to me right. that that would ever happen but I get that that's an experience somebody else is having and that they like that's a part of their experience but as a gay person I know what it's like to have a unique experience that right. the rest of mainstream society doesn't have and doesn't get and sometimes you can explain it to them and they can get it but I mean, there really is nothing that can compare to coming out. Like, there just isn't. And uh, and you can sort of explain it if people can rationally understand how it is. But the idea of, like, the internalized homophobia that gay people have and the turmoil of coming out and how often the... Biggest issue of coming out is not the straight people around you, it's you, how you feel about yourself, what you think the rest of the world is going to think, not what they actually think. What was your coming out like? Um, Uneventful. I mean, I, you know, I had anxiety about coming out. I thought there were people that thought I was straight. I don't know why I thought that in retrospect. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you're, you know, when you're gay, you sort of think, um, nobody notices, nobody can tell. Uh, and you know, I have a theory about all of the gays who became like class their class president or prom king or whatever. Because there's a lot of gay people who did that. And it's because of like, oh well I was so busy and i so I'm too busy to date. That's why I'm class president. It's so time consuming. Right. Like the gays tend to throw themselves into things. Or in every we're in every right. club or yeah. everything, yeah. And then it's like, oh well that's why I'm not dating because I've got all this stuff yeah, to do, I mean, all these extra activities. activity. But I um, no, my coming out was pretty uneventful because like my family already knew. I mean, I literally I came out to my sister. I was like, you know, I'm gay, right? And she went, duh. Like that was you know, it was pretty it was pretty uneventful um, from that standpoint. But no, it was harder for it was harder for me um, than I think it was for anyone for the people family. around you. And for no good reason,
0: right? But it's normal. But I mean, it is come on. So when the show got canceled, were you shocked? Um. I mean, a little bit. I mean, I had had a feeling this was
1: coming for a while just because our, the OutQ channel was very different than other channels inside of the company, inside of SiriusXM, in the sense that the people who listened to the channel had a very different relationship to the hosts than a traditional sort of fan-celebrity kind of a relationship. Like, I, I think Howard Stern is great. I would love to have dinner with him or whatever it is. Like, he's an interesting person and he does an amazing show. But I don't feel the kind of connection to him. You don't feel like, like a contemporary a, to him uh,
0: where, as a listener? Yeah. like But but, yeah. as a, but uh, me as a listener of your show, I feel like a contemporary of you. Like, I feel like we're ex- right. experiencing the same pop culture in the same sort of ways. We probably eat at the same places. We like the same shows. Whereas Howard feels like rarefied kind of celebrity person
1: right I mean and Howard I mean I think when Howard talks about his life he talks about like the normalcy of his life and he does something that's very similar that uh, Rosie or Kathy Griffin does of you know isn't it weird that I'm around these famous people right like that there's still that going on right of like I know I'm famous but Then I see these other famous people, and they have they have actual celebrity lives. Like I don't have a celebrity life, I have like a normal life. I'm a normal person who's a famous person. But these famous people, like Angelina Jolie, God only knows, she's like, but she sleeps on a cloud at night. Like who knows? And like that's a she's not a human person anymore. She's an entity of some kind. And so So I think Howard is relatable in that way. I think it's part of what people like about his connection with celebrities. It's never like, well, you know me, palling around with my friends. It's like, you sure, Regis. But like, you know, it's not, you know, he's not the A-lister going to the A-list things. Right. But anyway. But I think in the gay community, yeah, you have a different connection to, um, you can have a different connection with certain people who are in the public eye. Because we are gay people. We are experiencing a lot of the same things. You know, we do have relatable experiences. The coming out thing. One of the most popular things we ever did on the show was um, we had people call in with their gay tell. Like, the thing that happened when they were a kid that in retrospect they realized, oh, that was the moment where their parents were like, okay. Yeah. Like, for me, when I was little, maybe four or something, let's say. My mom's in the living room. She's reading. And I, walked, I was just walking through the living room, just wrapped up in a sheet. Just walking, slowly walking through the living room. And my mom said, uh, Derek, where are you going? And I said, please, I'm in character. And just kept walking. And I was like, okay. Oh, all right. right. Okay, so, here we go. But this is the kind of thing that, like, these are the stories that other gay people relate to. Because in retrospect, they realize, how did my parents not know I was gay? Right. It's ridiculous, whatever the, whatever the thing is. Right. And so I think there's a level of relatability there that is unique. But it's also what people tuned into the channel for. Yeah. It's not that other hosts aren't relatable, but people people aren't necessarily tuning into Howard or one of the political channels uh, because they want to relate on a personal level with the personal lives of the hosts. There, you know, they're there for entertainment. They're you know, or on a political channel, they're there for the you know the back and forth of the politics. They're not necessarily. You know, I like Rachel Maddow, but I don't think people are watching the show because they're like, I wonder what she's making for dinner tonight. Like, they're not having that kind of a relationship with her. Right. And that was the kind of relationship that the listeners had with the host. I think that the people who program at the company, that's not... Those are not the kind of shows they're programming. That's not the kind of entertainment that they're delivering. And so I think that they're just... Like, as time went on, you know, we were the first talk channel done in-house at the company. So you look at it like an experiment. Well... We don't know what people are going to like about satellite radio. We've never had satellite radio before. Like when I asked Chaz Bono what it was like to have Cher as a mother, Chaz said, I don't know. I only ever had Cher as a mother. Like, you know, you don't know. Like, this is the only experience we have. And after 13 years, they realized, you know what? We've tried a lot of things. This isn't the direction our programming is going anymore. We like celebrity-driven content. We think people want to tune in to hear stars. And so we're hiring stars. And the people on this channel... Never became stars, and that's not... It doesn't fit into our
0: model. And so you were you were not that shocked. But were you shocked when it went down, how it went down? Was there anything about it? Uh, I mean, I was shocked. I, I mean,
1: I had a feel when they announced Radio Andy was coming, I was like, well, even though the company has 27 rock stations, there's no way they think they can have two gay stations. Like, right. But it's also, I mean, it's straight people. You know, straight men think there's 27 different kinds of rock, Right. But one kind of gay. right? And so that's, you know, that's the world that gay that people like live in. the writing on yeah. the wall. So when they announced Radio Andy, I thought, uh, you know, that's our channel's in trouble. Our show is in trouble. And then um, as we got closer to the Andy launch, there was like a corporate reorg. And the thing is, we'd been there a really long time. And we were on our third CEO uh other programming people had come and gone other channels had come and gone other shows had come and gone in a lot of ways we were like the old furniture we'd just been there so long and i think that i mean anybody who's worked in tv will tell you the same thing like if you you know you have a programmer who who launches your show and you're their baby and then they get the axe and a new person comes in and they want their own babies yeah and so for a long time we had the people who were running programming had we had been their baby. And then there was a reorg and it was a new person right. who wanted new babies. And so I mean I don't I mean I don't begrudge them that because that's how entertainment it goes. I've worked in the entertainment business for 20 years now. I know how it works. And so I You know, I'm disappointed because I liked having that job and I liked the connection that we had with the listeners every day. But I also, you know, I have friends on Broadway and it's like, oh, boo-hoo, my show got canceled after 12 years. And they're like, that was 10 Broadway shows for me. Like, you know, for other people who work in other parts of entertainment, 12 years is a lifetime. That's three jobs, five jobs, 50 jobs.
0: What was it like right after? Were you like, what the fuck am I going to do? Or have I... Did you have ideas about what to do? Did you feel sort of just at a loss in a way? Like, uh, and, what do I do with my days? Well, it
1: was weird being at home, like, in the afternoon, in the evening. Like, that was weird. Because for 12 years, I wasn't home at night. And then all of a sudden, like, I was at home. And that was strange. The, the hardest thing to get used to was, like, oh, I'm home and at night and I'm not... Because I would come home from work at, like, 1 in the morning and stay up until 3. And I'm still pretty much a night person. But, you know, then it's like I'm puttering around the house. And now it's, like, 11.30 and I'm tired. It's like, well, I, I guess I'll go to bed like a normal person. And I didn't sleep particularly well the first few weeks. And so I would be up at, whatever, 6, 7 in the morning. And that was not natural for me. And I would come downstairs, like, did something happen? I have a, I've had a roommate for a long time, uh, Mike. And, like, sometimes, like, I sleep late, and he's much neater than I am. And so, like, sometimes he would, like, mop the floor while I'm sleeping. And so, you know, sometimes you come downstairs, like, oh, the floor's wet. Why is the floor wet? And it's like, oh, because I mop the floor, right? And so I came downstairs, I was like, did Mike do something different in the kitchen? The kitchen looks different. Why does it look different? And it took me days before I realized it was because I was seeing sunlight from a different angle from different windows right. that I ever saw because I was never awake at seven in the morning. Right. And so the kitchen looked different because the light was different. Even though I'd lived there for eight years, like all of a sudden I didn't recognize my kitchen because I never saw it at that time of day. So it was discombobulating like on almost every level. And, uh, but I thought I would miss, I thought I would miss my voice more. Like that was the one thing because over the years I thought about quitting You know, going back to private life, having a real job and working real hours again. and uh, But I always thought, well, I'll I'll miss having my voice. I'll miss being able to have an opinion about something. Go in and make my opinion known to thousands of people and have them react to it. Hopefully positively, you know. Like I rail on people leaving shopping carts out all the time. And I always think, if I could just keep one person from leaving their shopping cart in a parking lot... You know, I've done God's work here, here, right? And so I thought, that's what I will miss the most about it. Having Um, a platform. Yeah. And, I mean, I, you know, and I did miss that a bit. But, I mean, with social media, you can be as cranky, get off my lawn as you want on Facebook and Twitter all day. And it's, it's the same experience.
0: But when it, when you guys got fired, it was just your show. It wasn't the other show. So Frank and Doria, Frank DiCaro and Doria were still on. And, yeah. Larry and and Lance and Larry. You know, so it, yeah. was there a feeling of like, wh- us, what, you know, or did it cause a lot of intrigue or, go- I don't know. Uh, I mean, I think that, um, well, the first thing is, uh, and I think anybody
1: who's ever lost a job can feel this way, is your first thought is, what did I do wrong? What could I have done differently? where the outcome would have been different. And, um, and I can't, but I had to quickly get to a place of not looking at having the same job for 12 years as a failure. Because when any, whenever any show gets canceled, you look at that as a failure. It's like, well, the show failed, right? It, canc- it got canceled and it failed. And the thing is, like, we ran for twelve years. You ran ten, two years like, longer
0: than Seinfeld. Right,
1: exactly. <laughs> like, we ran a really long time to- in in media circles. You know, people listening to this podcast who work in TV. Or radio, or whatever. It'd Be like, how about people sitting on this couch? Right, exactly. <laughs> like 12 years? that's a, a, someone's lifetime.
0: Right. Like that's a really long time. But it wasn't so, when you got fired. It wasn't the wholesale. But it, no, it wasn't. The, but I mean,
1: I knew that that was going to happen. You know, it was like, on its way. A few months later, one of the hosts was doing their show while they were scraping the name of the channel off of the glass. Yeah. So it's like you have to. When that happens, it's like okay, I think we're all. Is probably, that really like, literally true? Yeah, that literally scraping. happened. Oh, of course, okay. like. There were shows in there all day yeah. long. They had to, when were they going to do it? Two in the morning? Like yeah. they had to scrape it off when somebody's working. But yeah, that's got to be demoralizing. But it was,
0: for me, painful the end of your show and also the end of Al Q. It was like, it felt like the end of an era. And it felt a bit dismissive of the gay experience. It felt a bit, um, not gay bashy, but it's sort of like, I don't think they knew what it meant to people. I don't think they got, it. we we've yes. talked about that. Yeah. We've already hit it at hit right. that. But it was like, I don't think they knew what it meant to people or what a a unique thing it was.
1: I think that this is... uh, Well, first of all, we were not... OutQ was not the first gay radio show. There were other people who did other gay radio shows before us. And I always... You know, whenever I talk about OutQ, I always try to mention that just because there will be other things that will go on. There will be other shows that will happen. And it's very easy to... um, tell a shitty first story as Louise Brooks called them of like, cause everybody always wants to tell like, well, we were the first to blah, 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 whatever. Um, but my old boss, Fred Seibert, who was the first creative director at MTV, he's, that was the thing in marketing is you always have to be the first, even if it's a very, very narrow, you know, we were the first gay channel broadcast nationally in satellite radio, like whatever it is, you have to be first. You have to be number one, no matter how narrow it is. Uh, but The reality is that the LGBT community has changed. The fact that it was just the gay liberation movement and now it's the LGBT community says it's changed. The way that people interact in the community has changed. What their needs are has changed. Um, And the way that we interact with each other has changed. And so I think that um, OutQ had an important time and place and I still think it could be there because I agree. I think that... the people who run the company didn't really get what the value proposition of the channel was or if they did they didn't see the business proposition associated with that right i mean you could argue it that way they could say i get that it meant a lot to yeah, a the few people yeah. but we have a limited satellite bandwidth you know it's not like the internet where you right. can just have a million channels with the satellites you have a spectrum and it's You know, once you tap out at 130 channels, that's all you have. So every channel is precious. And if there's not a business case for this channel, if we can make, you know, if this channel is making $2 million a year and we can replace it with a channel that makes $10 million a year, we're going to replace it no matter how people feel about it. Even if it's successful, we, if we can get something more successful, we're going to get the thing that's more successful. That's the cornerstone, cornerstone of capitalism. You know, we're the gay community is not capitalism. It's a community. Right. And so we as a community look at this kind of stuff very differently. You know, when we say, how come there aren't more gay characters on TV or how come there aren't more shows with gay leads or how come the gay characters aren't having more diverse lives or whatever our complaint is. You know, the comeback is always, like, what's the business case? Yeah. Is there a business case to have this kind of diversity? Yeah. If, it is, if there is, then we'll do it. I mean, I think you look at Shonda Rhimes and how successful she's been, and uh, she's... I think Shonda Rhimes is probably, um, like, to me, like, a new Elizabeth Taylor. Like, we can't give enough awards to Shonda Rhimes, because Shonda Rhimes just... Walked into Hollywood and said All of your notions about entertainment are false Right Oh, we can't have a show with a black female lead Because no one, white people won't right. watch it Well, we can't have gay men Making out and having oral sex on TV Because it will freak out middle America Wrong Like all, like everything That one who's ever been in a pitch meeting in Hollywood has heard Oh, nope, can't do that, nope America won't go for that. Shonda Rhimes said, screw
0: you, that's,
1: to- yeah. that's totally wrong, yeah. and I will show you that you're wrong.
0: And I'm, then I'll tweet about it.
1: And, and by the way, everyone's going to make billions of dollars out. it. Like, it's going to be so successful, and I, and I will prove you all wrong. I mean, the worst part about Hollywood is they have a short memory about anything that falls outside of the line, right? Right. So, and, and it, you know, in the future, it will be like, well, it worked for her. But it won't work for anyone else. Right. Like We'll never try it for anyone else, right? But, I mean, for gay people, she has given voice to LGBT characters that we have not seen on television before. She has given roles to LGBT performers that we have never seen before. And, you know, having gay, openly gay people play straight sexual characters on TV... And they are totally believable and totally in the mix. And it really is a very underrated part of Shonda Rhimes. Because, like, there are openly gay people all over Scandal. And they are playing straight straight parts. And nobody seems to notice or care. And it is totally in the fabric there. And all of these Hollywood notions of, like, well, if you're openly gay, no one's going to buy you as some kind of whatever. Straight character, a Lothario, whatever it is. And yeah. Shonda's like, Nope, that's wrong.
0: When I listen to your show, I'm always impressed with how smart you are. And I've always known you were smart. But how much you know about so many different things. Because you could be talking about something silly and fluffy and sure. whatever. And then you could come up with some theory of economics about such and such. And you're, and you're like, you know it. You're on top of it. Um, do you read a lot? How do you, do you, how do you get your news? But it's also not just current events. It's history and uh, how things work and all of that stuff.
1: Well, I um the Sarah Palin question. Why are you Riga so magazine? smart? I don't know. Why are you so smart? Well, my mother when I was a kid, my mother said that I should go on Jeopardy because I'm a wealth of useless information. She also said nobody would ever discover me in the living room, but like technology solved that. But I've always just sort of retained weird facts in like a cliff clavin kind of a way from cheers. And you know, it never was an asset until I had a radio show, and then suddenly it was a huge asset. Right. But I think that that's a good... I mean, it's a good lesson in life that sometimes it takes a while to figure out what your where your natural talents might lie. Because right. I don't think I have a good voice for radio at all, but I have a good personality for radio. And so that has carried me very well. Plus, I mean, when I started doing the show, because I didn't know anything about how to do a radio show. It was very important to learn the fundamentals of how to do a show, like how long segments need to go, how long a phone call should go, how to go in and out of a break, like all those things. And, you know, as you said, the, you know, we're coming up on the hard break, like in radio, you have a clock and at the top of the hour, wherever your hard break is, like you have to hit that break. And a lot of shows have a music bed and they go out to the music bed because it's very hard to hit that break. And when we first started doing the show, it was really important to me to hit that break.
0: Yeah, we're not gonna have a music
1: band. We're not having a music band. Fine without a net. I will. I will talk right up to it. And a lot of people are like, "Well," and then I start talking more slowly as I get close closer. Thing like sometimes you can see it on MSNBC. Like they get a little loosey goosey with the time right. around the thing. But sometimes you can see people speed up or slow down as they're right. getting like, "You're like, oh, I'm not gonna, but." It was very important to me to always hit it. I missed it twice, like I was distracted by like my own story, and I talked about right. it. But like twice in twelve years, I went over. I hit that break four times a night, five days a week for twelve years. Question: it. Because it was because that was important to me, right? Like knowing those kinds of mechanics of it, and part of that was born out of an interview that Howard Stern did with Larry King, which is the kind of nonsense thing that I would remember. But he was on Larry King right before he came to Sirius, like in the December before he was starting. And uh, he was telling a story about his getting fired from his first radio show. And he got fired. He was doing his radio show and he got fired. And he was complaining to his dad. He said, you know what? They just don't get me. I'm doing something edgy that nobody's ever done before and they just don't understand. And his dad said, no, you don't understand. Your radio show is terrible because you don't know how to do a radio show. You need to go and learn how to do radio, and then you can do whatever show you want. And Howard went off to wherever it was, Detroit, and did that show, and he did a terrible, crappy show that he didn't want to do so he could learn how to do a radio show. And Howard Stern is a really underrated radio personality because there are very few people in the radio business who know how to do a show the way that Howard knows how to do a show. People think it's all boobs and slapping baloney on a stripper's ass and whatever it is, but Howard gives the best interviews.
0: No, he's a, he's sensational, a interviewer. sensational interviewer. A sensational he's interviewer. He's genuinely interested. He's he, curious about people. He works the rhythms of the audience
1: like nobody's business. He knows when the conversation's lagging. He knows like what the audience is going to respond to. He's not afraid of going there, but he, but he also knows everything there is to know about doing a radio show. Yeah. Like the fundamentals of it. And it's why the radio industry has had such a hard time replacing Howard because like they put David Lee Roth on. Well, David Lee Roth is, I guess, outrageous if you're 60, but he's not a radio person. He doesn't know how to do a radio show. So of course his radio show failed. He's not a radio person. Howard is a dyed in the wool, probably the last of a generation radio person. And when I saw that interview with Howard, it was like, oh, yeah, that's important. Knowing the content of your show is important, but knowing how the content is supposed to come together is more important. Yeah, respecting the form. So, like, yes, I know lots of things, um, and I read sort of voraciously online. Um, Anybody who is friends with me on Facebook knows that I am a notorious Snopes poster, like, anybody who posts anything that slightly smells hinky, I'm all over the web to see how real or not real it is. And even if it's a meme I agree with, I'm sourcing that thing like crazy just because, like, the internet is just a wash and crap. And I think that truth is important. And so I'm kind of a terrible person to be friends with on Facebook because if you blindly, you know, share some meme or oh my god can you believe this article i hope it's true oh that's the word that one makes me crazy and uh so yeah that's just i don't know it's just a part of my personality i guess
0: now speaking of the web you have a wikipedia page
1: i do yeah uh
0: do you did you write it who, write, who writes it wikipedia
1: i i wrote an initial wikipedia entry for myself and then a former co-worker sort of reported me to wikipedia that I wasn't famous enough to have a Wikipedia page and that I was self-editing it and it was just for self-promotion. And Ooh, so... Were they pissed at you? Yeah, yeah. They didn't like me for whatever reason. I mean, I have an unlikable personality, but in this case, I think they were just <laughs> they were just jealous. It's, that's uh, a lot of work to do to... Yeah, it's like, that's petty.
0: Yeah, and it's also time-consuming. I mean, there are also sorts of people I don't like
1: that I have interacted with in media and I have made no bones about the people that I don't like. But I would never like toss their Wikipedia page, bec- or the, because I, you know, to be mean and spiteful. Like, I would never do so what like
0: was that. So what was their goal? Is to to get to have you lose to, like, your to Wikipedia,
1: not have a Wikipedia page? And the Wikipedia editors came back and was like, "He has a national radio show. He's famous enough for Wikipedia." But after that, like I stopped updating it, and then I have a stepsister in Utah who updated it, and she put in all sorts of crazy, like half real things. And, but at that point, I was like, well, I'm just going to let my Wikipedia page be what and it is. Of its own so, life. Yeah. So I don't, I honestly, I
0: don't know much of what's right. on there now, but I don't know. Well, you can ask me something out of it.
1: it there's a list true. of
0: the people that you've interviewed. You've, mm-hmm. And they've interviewed a number of celebrities, da, da, da. And they list a few. Yes. Who's the first one that is listed? Uh, is it Donald Trump? It's Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's delicious. Did he come in the studio? No. He was never in the studio. He was over the phone. What was it like? What do you remember about it? Um, We interviewed
1: Trump two, maybe three times. And the first time we interviewed Trump, because the same thing happened with Martha Stewart. You have 10 minutes. That's what we were told. You have 10 minutes. Okay. And it will be a strict 10 minutes. Like, we will be watching the clock 10 minutes. And we interviewed Martha Stewart, she had some book out, and so we did an interview with her, and she was at Sirius, so it wasn't... Like, we, it took some wrangling to get her to do our show, but right. it was, like, it was all in the family, and she was doing, like, touring around with people. But we got 10 minutes with Martha, and at 9 minutes and 30 seconds, Martha said, I've had a wonderful time talking to you. <laughs> like, she's out. She was out, and like... Like a clock. But what I liked about Martha, that people may not know about her, was that when Martha would come in and out to do her show, even though she would have, like, other executives from the Martha world or assistants, whatever, with her, she was always carrying her own bags. She'd have, like, a, like two giant Birkin uh, Birken bags and, like, a shopping bag with... Pastries in it Or whatever The crazy crap She was carrying But she oh, Even if it was like Four bags And the person behind her Was just with a blackberry She was carrying All of her own shit I respect that And I totally respect that About Martha When I went to see her Do her TV show And I know it irritated The people who worked On the show But like She would do the cleanup In between the breaks Like she would move To clean the pans And wipe down the counter And everything and, like, there are PAs there to do that kind of thing. It would not have been diva-ish for her to talk to the segment producer about what the next segment was instead of kind of half-nodding her head while she's, like, wiping
0: down a counter. I can see that as being part of her personality, though, like, yes. part of her process. Yes. Like, I create, I make, I do, I clean and up. I'm, I, and, I'm yeah. been, and I'm doing it all. And if involved. I skip a step, yeah. everything's going to get fucked up. But, like, it,
1: I heard from somebody who had worked on, like, her old, her old show that was all, like, the one she did for PBS or whatever it was. And she was there, and they did a... She was doing, like, a quilt or something. And they were taping a segment of her doing this quilt. And they had a swap-out quilt, right? And she's, like, she's supposed to do the thing where she sews one of the squares and, like, shows you how it is. And then they have a swap-out, and here's the finished one. And she made the crew sit there while she finished that whole fucking quilt.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And it was just, like... And it's like, look, Martha, we know that your husband left you and you got nobody to go home to. But the rest of us have family. But nobody's going to tell Martha, like, wrap it up, Martha. How to do her quilt. Yeah. No, you don't. And she just went and she just, like, did the whole quilt. And so they filmed, I'm sure there's somewhere, footage of four hours of Martha Stewart sewing a quilt. I
0: love it. So,
1: like, I have a lot of respect for Martha. But, like, it can, like with any person, me included, it can always go too far. But with Trump, she's like, you've got ten minutes. Okay. So we had Trump on, and I guess Trump was having a good time. The first time we did it with him, we squeezed it to 12 or 13 minutes. The next time we had Trump on for 10 minutes, he was on for 16, 17 minutes. And the thing is, I I honestly believe that Trump, like, had a clock right there. Like, he knows his own time.
0: Yeah, no, he would have. If he wanted off, he would have gotten off. Yeah,
1: you say what you want about Trump. Because, like, we did an interview by phone with Joan Rivers, which I'm sorry it was by phone. Like, I hate... I hate the first interview with anyone, because you interview a lot of people, Dennis. You're an excellent interviewer. Um, Interviewing people in person is so much better than doing it over the phone, especially if you don't know them, because you can't build any kind of rapport over the phone with somebody. And we had, um, like, Kathy Griffin called into the show. We had her call in. And I had met her a few times through you. And, I mean, we were friendly, but um, she wasn't, like, a friend of mine. But, like, I knew her socially, and we had her on the show, and I don't think that she connected that we had met. And I introduced her on the show, and I said, and here's Kathy Griffin, host of Hot Cup of Talk, which was an HBO special, I think
0: she did. Well, she used to like, do it at the Groundlings yeah, as a live stage show, and then it became uh, something thing. else.
1: But it was like 15 years earlier. It was yeah. not her most current thing. Yeah. But I did it as a joke. Right. Like... Or to see if she would
0: pick up on it and it was an icebreaker.
1: Like I did when I met Sandra Bullock and I said, you were the best thing in Turner and Hooch. She thought that was hilarious. Yes, because she
0: would. Yes.
1: But anyway, but Kathy was like, you don't even know my resume. You don't even know who I am. Like... Completely mistook because you know she would do radio tours with people and got. And we've seen clips on YouTube of like the clueless interviewers who don't know the person they're talking to. And I tried to back out. I'm like Kathy, I've met you at Dennis's house. Like I have known you for years, but she was not connecting exactly who I was. And so we got off to a very rocky start. That was the only interview she ever did on our show. And with Joan,
0: you poor thing. Well, I mean, look.
1: Here's the thing about comedians, because the listeners always wanted comedians as guests. And Dennis will back me up here. I'm I'm hopeful. But here's the thing with comedians is that they are very hard to interview because everything they want to tell you about themselves, they put in their act. And they can often be very guarded and very private because they gave it the office. And they don't have more to give other than what they've given you.
0: Yeah. and It's hard to find one that'll just kind of be real.
1: To, to really open up. Yeah. And, you know, the easiest way to interview a comedian is to give them softballs from their act. You know, oh, tell us about the time you met Tyra Banks. You know, and Kathy Griffin will go and tell a Tyra yeah. Banks story, right? And so that's the easiest way to interview a celebrity or a, a comedian. And it's what the listeners want anyway. Right. Like, that's what they really want. But they want comedians all the time. But it's like, it's very hard, unless you know their act backwards and forwards and you're willing to just give them softballs out of their act, it's very hard to interview them and talk to them. You know, Margaret Cho, who is lovely, the, uh, the first time I interviewed her, I had met her a couple of times before, again, through you, Dennis. And so we did an interview and it was in person. And she had been doing a radio tour all day and I was the last one all day. And they told me, like, she's tired. She's a little cranky. Like, it's the end of the day. She's been at this since, whatever, 7 in the morning. Right. Doing the Today Show and whatever. And now she's been at Sirius doing a, uh, you know, tour here for, like, two hours or something. And you're the last one. This is the last thing you wanted. But I went in and I was like, you don't remember me, but I met you at Dennis's. And I went to see your show at Largo and whatever, blah, 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 blah. And had a couple of minutes to warm up. And then we did the interview. And it went... Really nicely, but I was also really gentle because I knew it was the end of the day. I was like, I'm going to stick to the talking points. I'm going to build some trust here and, you know, let her go home. She's tired. She just wants to go home. I'm not going to try to go long or get extra out of her or anything. And we interviewed Margaret maybe four or five times right over time. I know this long story about Trump. Anyway, anybody <laughs> who's listening to my show knows this is how it goes. But... um you know, by the third or fourth time with Margaret, the world had opened up. She would tell us anything, stories she'd never told before, whatever it was. And we could do it over the phone or in per- it was great. And, but the thing is, you have to build that rapport. And so the thing with Trump was, you know, by the third time we had him on, we had a nice rapport with him. And Trump and Martha, again, what they're, the ways that they're similar, and you see it in Trump's campaign... Is it Trump? Everything's the best. And that's how Martha was too. This is the greatest cheesecake recipe ever, right? These are the curtains you have to have, right? Everything's the best. And with Trump, my casino is the best. The hotel is the best. My wife is the best. My kids are the best. Everything is the best. Unless I don't like you. And then you're the, absolutely the worst thing that is destroying our planet. There's right? no gray. There is no gray. But part of his business, part of his shtick, uh, just like with Martha, is you're always selling. And you're upselling. You have to be in business with me because I've got the best stuff. The best people work for me. Uh, we have. What all the were you interviewing products. him for? Apprentice? For the Apprentice. Yeah. And so, you know, our show is the highest rated. This is the best cast we've ever had. Like, everything was the best. But I noticed that about him that it was similar to Martha. And that's the only way that I think they're similar. But, and I think it's sort of a good lesson. Uh, It's probably in the art of the deal, probably. But it really is, that's his tick. But it's, I think, a big part of what his success is. And if you think about it, his success as a presidential candidate, as trash-talky as he is, as mean-spirited as everything that he is, People hear America's great in what he said. They
0: hear winning. They They hear
1: victory. They hear... They hear class and great. They hear, you know, this is the best. I'm the best. I'm going to deliver the best. Because that's the way he sells things. He's always upselling. And so a lot of us who don't buy it, we're not interested in your Trump stakes. We think, oh my God, what the hell are you selling? But for the people who want to hear the pitch, he's selling the pitch. Like he's selling a timeshare in Boca. Yeah. Like you're gonna love this timeshare. You can't believe the view well, of the water.
0: He's masterful at 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 and at, at, at talking. And not yeah. just giving speeches, but talking and being yeah. spontaneous and it you know, he can roll with it. And he's got this thing that he does where he always nothing's ever his fault and he's able to sort of spin it and promise and it's a well honed uh, craft that he has. Now you and, De- uh, you and Romaine yep. have Derek and Romaine 2.0. Yep. Um, you've brought your show back. Yes. And it's on the internet. Yes. And you're doing it. And you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of when own Oprah started OWN. Oh, God. <laughs> but it was maybe <laughs> Rocky at I, first. I, right. But now it's a huge success. But, so but you know rocky. what I mean? Like, yes. she, she was part of a bigger thing. Yes. And then, and she, then, then like, she went to this little thing. Yes. No, I'm, breaking, up at, I'm right. breaking out on my own. But you guys are actually doing it. And it seems, from my point of view, to be working for you, and I'm so proud and excited about that because it's very hard to to do what you're doing. It seems it's the most nerve wracking
1: and terrifying thing I've ever done in my life, like bar none.
0: And when did you decide we're gonna let's? Hey, what if we do this? Keep it going and do it on the web.
1: I think probably
0: cancellation.
1: I mean, I was in a bit of shock when our show got canceled, like a shell shock kind of a thing, And, but by day three, I knew this was exactly where we were going to end up. Now, we met with agents and managers, we met with podcasting companies, we met with traditional radio companies, and everyone said wonderful, glowing, raving things, and... But I knew it wasn't going to go anywhere. Like, I just knew. And part of it was I looked at these podcast companies and, like, you know, they were... It was a dot-com thing all over again. I knew that they didn't have a business model. I knew that a lot of people weren't getting paid. Everybody was doing, you know, one hour a week. It's like, people expect us hours a day. They like our show live. They like that we have phone calls. That's what they're going to expect. We can't do a one-hour, once-a-week podcast and have that satisfy people because our audience won't go for that. Like, that's not what they want. And that wasn't the business model that these companies were doing. And, so you have
0: sort of created your own business model in a way.
1: Well, I mean, we're not the only ones doing this. I really think Glenn Beck is really the model that I would like to follow, of all. But, you know, when he got fired from Fox, you know, he had his radio show and his radio following and everything, and he created The Blaze. And they are sort of this, even more wacky news thing and everything, but they have articles on the web and other people do shows and he's sort of the head of that. But he took the audience that he knew he had. He knew he had a base to work from. And he said, even if I'm reaching a smaller audience, I can take the core of what I have and turn that into a business. And I really felt like that was what was going to happen for us. We would miss, we were going to miss a lot of our audience out of Sirius XM. We had a lot more people that used to listen to us and listen to us now. And I knew it was going to be smaller. And, but I also knew, you know what? We've got a core, and the core wants to stick with us. And we don't need to have all of our original listeners in order to be a success. You've friends. got enough
0: to do. To we it We have enough work.
1: in our core to make it work.
0: That's incredible. And, well, I mean, you know. I, My hat is off. I really think what you're doing is... Remarkable And that, that it's working And that the listeners Have stuck with you And that You know what I mean And the technology Came together And all of it I know it's not easy Because it's not You don't just plug into Something that already exists You kind of have to Create it from the ground up And you have to real Figure out the technology And you have to figure out You have to do it every day And when you and Romaine Record your new show Are you in the same room together?
1: Yeah We do yeah. in the same studio
0: Yeah And in a lot of ways It's
1: like the old show You know, we're there in the same room, we're taking calls, and, I mean, we have a live chat room that goes on with the show, too, and there's, like, webcams, and then, whatever, gay guys, oh, there's a webcam, my clothes are off. You know how that goes. Like, they can't keep it in their pants, so now we have a separate, like, you can't keep it in your pants chat room, and then we have, like, a regular chat room, but um, people can chat while the show is going on, the show streams live, and then they can download the shows later and listen anytime. Uh, It is... Like, the technology is there. Not a lot of other people were putting all of these pieces together in this way. Um, and so it's, it's been a challenge. And the, on, one, on one hand, it's been a challenge because we've had to just sort of figure this all out from scratch and from our very limited knowledge base. The other part that makes it difficult is even for people who like us and liked our old show there is a barrier to entry.
0: You have to teach them a new way of doing yes. it. Yes. I haven't subscribed. What yeah. kind of a friend am I? Five.
1: You're, you're the best friend. You're a great friend, Dennis, because I'm here doing your podcast. I know, you're but great you know friend. what I'm
0: saying. But also, you did the groundwork because you had a newsletter, you built a mailing list, you had your Facebook. You guys pulled it off because you really built that community.
1: But I, if social media didn't exist, if Facebook and Twitter didn't exist, we wouldn't have been able to do it at all. Yeah. I it Facebook and Twitter have revolutionized the ability of people who have some kind of public following because I'm loath to say that I'm famous or a celebrity or a star because right. most of the people who are tuning into your podcast will never have heard of me in their life. Right. And, you know, my friend, <laughs> my <laughs> friend Maddie <laughs> like in New me. York used to introduce me to his friend. This is Derek. He's famous. And I like, if you have to tell someone that that person is famous, they're not famous. Right. It's like the bit that Kathy Griffin did about um, Anna Nicole Smith not knowing who Little Richard is. Right. Like, Little Richard is famous. Like, right. that's a famous person, right? Everybody knows. And so, I, you know, I'm not Little Richard. Like, I'm, you know, that's just not where we are. But anybody who has any kind of a following, social media allows you to actually turn that into something, tap into it in a way that you could not reach people before social media. Does it
0: come naturally to you, social media? I struggle with it as oh, a, as a brand or as a, as a person. It's not, I do okay with it, but I, I not, I don't love it and I don't take to it naturally. Like I should probably tweet more about the podcast, but I kind of feel like I don't want to be annoying or what am I going to say? You know what? I don't know. And I can be, I can plug my shit. I'm, yeah. I'm a good promoter. I don't it's, know. I'm not great at social media.
1: It's hard. I think that with social media, the key is it, Well, first of all, it's a beast. that's always hungry. Yeah. And, but you also, you can't feed it too much because it'll die. Like, it won't get fat. It'll just die. Like, if you are the kind of person who posts too much, like, I love Roseanne. She posts too much. I follow her on Twitter. She's a national treasure, but I'm seconds away from unfollowing her on Twitter because she tweets too much. And I, you know, I don't follow that many people on Twitter. I follow, like, 300 people or something on Twitter. And if... Roseanne is two pages of it. I'm like, I can't see what anybody else is saying. Right. And so, like, I'm going to have to let you go, Roseanne. So, I know she'll be devastated to lose me as a follower. But, like, I want to follow her because, you know, I want to support her and I want to believe in her. And, you know, I'm aligned with her. She grew up in Utah. I know what that's like. Like, I I want to be there for her. But she, tweet, she tweets away me anyway. Uh, so, there's a, there's a balance between too much and too little. And you also are sort of... It's the time of day And if you catch people Or you don't catch people So in some ways You kind of have to be A little If you're shamelessly promoting You have to be A little bit repetitive Because you have to You have to Not be shy About posting the same thing More than once About yourself But you also need to mix in Other things You have to tweet about Or post on Facebook About things that are Not related to you To keep people interested in you Because if all you're doing is Hey buy my book People going to stop coming back, yeah, right? Yeah. Because they will have gotten that message and they're tired of hearing it. They yeah, want yeah, something yeah. else. So it's always a delicate balance. You always have to, th- you know, figure out what your thing is. But it's hard. Like, because I, I'm with you. It's not. It doesn't not something. That, to me.
0: You know, some people really take to it. I know. Yeah. Um, talk about the nerve wrackingness. Was it when you launched? Would people do it? Is it still there? It's the
1: question of will the audience be
0: there? Yeah, I think. And I don't... Why did you realize, okay, this might work?
1: Uh, The day that we launched and the website crashed because of the traffic.
0: That's so gratifying, isn't it? Didn't you feel like you almost wanted to cry that they were there for you? No, I w- was... <laughs> like, uh, I want to cry like, and they're not even... I wanted to reach
1: into my chest Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom style and rip my own heart out like because I because of the crash because of the crash it be it was the helplessness of it and this is the problem like Romaine and this I is are the not thing. Oh,
0: we technical we got a chance, people but oh we're gonna blow it we've got we're gonna man. blow it we're right we're gonna blow it
1: people are showing up on day one and we're not there for them like yeah. we wanted them to be
0: there for us
1: and then we weren't there for you're them
0: you're Obamacare
1: it was but you're right.
0: Obamacare but
1: it was also like it was that guy in Chicago all over again of yeah. like He was there for us and we walked away and went to IHOP. And so (laughs) I just, I wanted to have a good, you know, I, it's very important to me that people have a good experience with our product. Right. And part of it is this Trump thing. We're selling a product and it's got to be the best, you know, it has to be Trumpian in that way. And I don't want people to have a bad experience. I want them to have a good experience. And so they have to be able to come to the site. They have to be able to hear the show. And I try, we try to be as responsive as humanly possible. Knowing that there are always going to be technical barriers to people listening. You know, we can have a chat client and it works for 85% of people, but the 15% of people that it doesn't work with their browser or their phone or whatever it is, like, they're just going to be upset. And I can't, I mean, I can't do anything about it. The, all we can do is we got to focus on the 85% and get it as close to 100 as we can. But yeah. it's hard because I've never been a technical person. You know, I used to work at AOL. Well, I don't know anything about
0: you know, the learning curve of what you have to learn, and it probably always changes, and there's all this stuff. Who, who does... Who's more of the driver of that, you or Romaine? Are you both Are you both sort of doing the same amount of different stuff, or... We, uh,
1: I mean, we've been lucky that we've been very complementary with an E over the years, that one of us will have more of a strength in one area than the other one. Right. And so that has been... That's been a big part of our success, I think, over time, because... It allows one of us to be strong in an area and the other person to take the back seat and not feel bad about it.
0: Right, cause that'll be because they'll be the other thing where it balances, you know, it all balances out. Yeah,
1: because I, mean, I think it's like that in relationships. If you're in a couple, sometimes one person in the relationship is more social or right. more popular or makes more money, whatever it is. In order for that relationship to work, you have to be uh, accepting of the various inequalities that will take place. And, uh, and so that's, that's been a big part of it. So Romaine, because of her degree in sound engineering, she's the one, she really does all of the like nuts and bolts of the show broadcast itself. And I think that we were sort of naive about all the moving parts that were involved in doing something like this, especially doing a live show with a phone system on the web behind a paywall. Like there's.
0: Like one crisis point after another. So many different things that could go wrong. Were, yeah. Was one of you or the other more more committed to doing the new version? Or did one person sort of, no, we can do this? Or were, were you pretty equal in that way? I, I had worked
1: at startups. And because I knew right away, be, uh, Romaine does not pay attention to these things. Like Romaine would say, oh, uh, a listener wrote to me and they said, this podcast company would be great for us. They're going to have great podcasts there. They'll hire us. And I mean I would look at the company and I would look at the podcasts that were there and everything and I would know a bit about the people who were there and I worked at startups. I mean I know what a startup looks like and I would know right away it's like, oh well they don't have a business model or whatever it is, they can't pay us our salary. Like they can't they may want us there and you know, as long as we're willing to work for free or considerably less than we were making before while they get off the ground, great. But if what you want is our old job somewhere else, like they can't deliver it. But Romaine, are you there now? Uh, we're close. We're pretty close.
0: That's so I mean, awesome. we're, we're really at a place where we can you. keep
1: the lights on. Yes.
0: You know, are the other serious shows going, hey, how do you do that? Do Frank and Doria want to <laughs> d- do that?
1: Well, what was interesting is before Q went away, when we announced we were launching our thing, we got a lot of love from other hosts at SiriusXM, and part of it was... You know, we made really good friends there. We were there for 12 years. You make close friends, and they were all very supportive of what we were doing. But a big part of it is the radio industry has been changing since satellite radio came around. There's yeah, you guys figure out. You go then, figure it out.
0: You go figure it out, and then we'll have coffee, and you can share all your right? secrets with us. But
1: more importantly, it's like they want to hear that if this happens it's to possible. them, there's a way around it. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I think they were very it's excited of that. But I mean, the, the downside, I mean, you know, I wish this had happened later for any number of reasons, you know, would have liked to have held on to it a little bit longer, built up our social media following more. We do these listener cruises. I wish we'd started doing that a few years earlier. So that was in a bigger place because it's really a snowball going downhill. And so I would much have rather had our bigger audience to keep the snowball going with than, you know, with our smaller audience. But even so, like the cruise is going crazy. It's. Um because of this our audience has solidified, but it's also endeared us to them more and made them want to do things like the cruise with us. So it has been a net positive, but still you always whenever you're starting something new, you always wish you were better prepared for whatever right. it was. Having a baby, starting a new job, moving to a new city. Like you were always like, Oh, I, if I only had one more week to study for that bar exam. So anyway. So it's never perfect, but uh in some ways I'm glad we were first because we're already first to market with our product as as any company will tell you
0: as trump would tell you yeah
1: it's more important to be dante's peak and come out first than, to than be to volcano. volcano yeah you know nobody wants to be the, the although armageddon
0: movie. armageddon did better than deep impact it
1: did but that's taylor you know how i hate her oh God. for no good reason you, i irrationally you, you, you hate always hated her I you've still always hated do. Her.
0: All right, we're going to leave part one right there with Derek's hatred of Taylor Leone. Part two is coming up in the next podcast. He answers a lot of questions from the observation deck. He breaks down the day he got fired from Sirius XM. Lots of good stuff coming up. Um, Derek schlepped all the way to my neighborhood in North Hollywood when he was visiting in L.A., and I really, really appreciate that. It was really fun to catch up with him. Um, so this happened. I went and saw the *Devil Wears Prada* unauthorized musical parody version at Rockwell here in Los Angeles, and uh, with a few friends. And Drew Drogi, past podcast guest and extraordinary comedian, played Miranda Priestly. And it was so much fun, and Drew was so hilarious. And if you happen to be in L.A., do yourself a favor and go see that show. First of all, it made me really appreciate the movie and the script and the story of it. Um, all the cast was really great. But Drew would do this thing where he would have those really bitchy Miranda Priestly phone calls. And he would end them all by saying click. So he would like, so get me the double latte that I want, click. And I became obsessed with click. So I really want click to happen. Take it and run with it. Um, I want click to be a thing that we say when we talk on the phone although i also want talking on the phone to be a thing that happens because it's apparently over too so it looks like this is going to be a hard road to hoe um that's it thanks for listening uh i appreciate it more derek hartley coming your way in the next podcast and until then this has been dennis anyone bye